I owe a massive apology to all the women rookies on tour. I think we both pretty well tore them to shreds. I'm apologizing. Uh, well done, rookie women. Welcome to The Drop on the Stab Podcast feed. My name is Danny Johnson and we're late. We normally release these episodes every Friday, but Mike and Stace wanted to wait for the Sunset event to be over before they recorded their chat, which they did. So we'll hear from them. But before we do that, let's chat to the biggest, dickiest, most powerful surfer around, Mr. Brendan Buckley. Well, we are all doing good, Danny. Everybody, the whole world. I'll tell you who's doing good at the moment is the surfing world. I feel like the tour's back and thriving. There's shit happening everywhere. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, I don't feel like I've been so excited for a WSL year in a while. Usually I'm like, okay, yeah, they're back. They're doing the thing. Here they go. Look at that. It's so round of 16. That's cool. Nice, fun. But this year I like care more. When you start with an event like when they had a pipe and everybody's just crying everywhere, then uh, it's a pretty good league, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Should we get into some surf news? Brendan Buckley. Let's get, sh- let's get into some news, Danny. Stab in the Dark with Jack Robinson. Episode one is here. Uh, it's here, folks. And this is, I think this is like, this is like Christmas for people, which are a lot of our listeners, who I think kind of used to do Christmas gifts. And now the only thing they really care about in life that's material is surfboards. So now Christmas is just ruined for gift giving because they just don't know how to think about anything besides surfboards. This is Christmas for those people, um, of which I am one. Stab in the Dark is here. 100%. This is easily the most anticipated project. This is the seventh iteration and it's the most anticipated and the most talked about by far. So it's exciting times in the Stab, stab offices and, and I guess for any of the Stab Premium members. Have you seen the first episode, Buck? I've seen the first episode. And what'd you think? I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but it's interesting when you see some giants fall early. Yeah. Well, hey, take, let's take it from the top, though. This, this season or this series or this iteration of Stab in the Dark stars Jack Robinson. What's your thoughts on Jack Robinson? And I guess I'm asking you as a, an American that now lives in France, that now lives in Portugal. He's one of those people that you almost forgot how good he was because, you know, he had the little bowl cut when he was like 12 and you saw a bunch of me, oh my God, this kid's so good and he can do airs and he's charging already. And so he's one of those people that you're just like so familiar with for like 10 years by the time he's like 20 that uh, you forget how good he is. You know, when somebody like just starts popping off at 20, all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, like who's this guy? Yeah, it almost felt like you could forget how good he was for a bit. I think his year last year just was that reminder, though. I think winning the CT event as a rookie and then his part in Snap 4, it was just like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, this kid is is incredible. Yeah, I was wondering that because he was – in Australia, he was essentially our John John in the sense that he was that child prodigy that was standing in giant tubes that were, you know, horrifying for anyone. And you know, he, was this, he was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Well, what's really interesting is I think a lot of the other Stab in the Dark surfers were, he must be the youngest, right? He must be the youngest at the time of that he's doing it. And I think a lot of the people, I mean, on the other end was Mick probably, where he was off the CT and you could just tell how much knowledge he had amassed after being so obsessed with surfboards for so long. Whereas 
I thought Jack would be a little bit more like goofy and like, oh, I don't really know what's what, like, because he's still so young. But I was impressed by how kind of tuned in he is with all that. I, I thought just being so young, he wouldn't have that experience. But I think he seems like he knows just as much about surfboards as any of our other test pilots over the years. Yeah, it's challenging from a storytelling point of view because he's easily the youngest star that we've had. And while he's not as skilled at stringing together a story and expressing himself, he what he lacks there, he makes up uh, for with just incredible confidence. If you're looking for the most high performance F1 shortboard, you want to be surfing with no limits. You want to be flowing through turns with no glitches as fast as you can. You see the top guys, there's no glitches in the surfing. That's what a shortboard's meant to do. You're meant to do whatever you want without thinking. Like it's unbelievable how confident he is as, as a young person and on camera. Like we, in the first series, we, had, we decided to change it up this year and, and throw a spanner in the works that when we were doing a board reveal that we'd tell Jack that, hey, one of these boards you're gonna have to ditch without even riding it. You're gonna have to just look at it and ditch one right now. And he just turned around and said, yeah, no worries. Didn't, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't an issue for him at all. And then he just picked one up and knew instantly that he essentially sent to the bin. Uh, but I mean, come on. If you re- your whole life is you see a 20 foot wave come at you that's about to tube and you're like, yep, no worries. Like, of course somebody's just gonna tell you to take a surfboard and move it. You're gonna be okay with it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I thought it would be a bigger moment though. But he just was so nonchalant. Yeah, you're right. When you when you use that analogy, it's it's it really is it really is nothing. But yeah, it's like oh, take this surfboard and move it over here. Yeah, sure. He didn't even have to move it. Actually, you watch, he just kept it there. It's <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Just leave the board there. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe I thought he loved surfboards more than that, and he would it'd be a difficult emotional decision for him to make. But he he knew pretty. He was pretty confident in which one he wasn't even interested in surfing. So. That was that was pretty interesting. Another unique thing about Jack was all the filmers reported after that worked on this project reported that he does not like filling up hard drives. They said they were just tearing through batteries and would end up with one or two clips at the at the end of the day. He's so selective in the water when he's out there picking waves. And you might not know that when you watch the film, because obviously there's a lot of sessions, there's a lot of content, but the filmers were, I don't know, I feel like they were praying for Elon Musk to start redirecting his energy from cars to camera batteries. Oh, we should punch that one on the docket for old Elon, but that's stressful. Like I couldn't imagine, imagine missing a clip that you've been waiting two hours to film. Oh my goodness. Well, the good news is I think with this one, it was another one that makes this project unique is that it was on the North shore, which is probably, I remember I was, when I was there this year, there's like a little day at off the wall where I looked around the beach and I think I could count like 15 red cameras. Yeah. And it wasn't even a good day. And it was just mind blowing. I don't know who was trying to sell or do anything with this, all this information that was being captured at that moment. But uh, the North Shore is not a place where you could hide anything at all. And so it's definitely the most public place we've done Stab in the Dark, which. I guess if uh, one of our filmers missed a clip after waiting for two hours, somebody else probably got it. Yeah, that's true. You know what's it's funny is it's so public that when Jack was testing the Pizel, and Pizel's the only ever two-time winner of Stab in the Dark, so naturally he's going to be in this edition again. But when 
Jack was testing the Pizel. He happened to be doing so at Rocky Point and Pizel lives at Rocky Point. And so he just peeked over his fence and was like, oh, there's Jack testing my board. He got to see it. He got to see it live. And, yeah, and then as you mentioned, there are filmers that have been poaching clips and a few of them have ended up on YouTube. It's, it's a tricky thing to keep under wraps. But apart from the abundance of filmers, Hawaii is just possibly the best place to test surfboards because all – all the elite surfers say is that what you want to do to test boards is have waves that you can generate speed speed on and, and any wave with that level of power is just going to give you feedback instantly on how the board works. So you can definitely tell that in this in this first episode of, of Jack Stab in the Dark. Like he has no problem whatsoever feeling these boards out in every wave he slices up. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Trying to create speed is just annoying. It's just a burden. Hey, were you surprised at the boards that Jack ditched in this first episode? Because we don't want to give anything away here, but he ditches three boards in that first episode. And one of them I just thought he looked so crispy on. I thought he might have hung on to it, but no, I got the boot. Now I'm fucking over this thing. Fuck. <laughs> had enough. That must have been a sign the last wave. The board flipped, almost broke my ankle, and the leash came off. I was like, try another one. Done. I think, like I said, you just, you don't expect giants to fall early. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of world titles that went down there in the first episode. A lot of recent world title shapers that, uh, see you later, pal. Yeah. Which, it's pretty wild. Did, did he look good it, on the board to you though? On the boards he ditched? Yeah. Not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the other one? But the other one I did think he looked good on. That was definitely more surprising. I thought the one that he kept from the episode was like, oh shit, he's clearly got a connection here, mm. which wasn't the same as the second one he ditched that was more on the fence. But like, I think when you compare it with the board that he kept, which was like, okay, yeah, this is working. This We got something here. It wasn't quite there. So I wasn't too surprised by that. I guess. It's just interesting because the... The surfers are going completely off feel. And so when we're watching the footage back, we're seeing something different to what they're feeling. And it's always been a, a rule since the start of Stab in the Butt Dark that they're not allowed to watch the footage ever. So they can't have a session and look back and go, oh, I was actually ripping on that board and, and have it affect their decision making. It all has to be perfectly on feel. And I was wondering just how good I thought Jack looked on, on that on that thicker board if that he I just was surprised I thought he I thought he might hang on to it but that's all part of it that's all part of it Buck that's why we why we can't wait to watch the next episode because there could be even better boards oh yeah we're gonna kill more everybody's gonna go there and just get chopped away the volcano is gonna get everybody that's right no one no one can escape the volcano especially when they're island boy which Jack is because Oahu he's island boy <laughs> he's pretty he's boy. He's borderline Hawaiian. That accent is slowly creeping into full Hawaiian. I think a couple more seasons and we might, we'll forget that he was even Australian once. I think if you spend enough time at the Volcom house, you just get, uh, Hawaiians will have their own passports, but you just get like the uh, Hawaiian passport somehow. The WSL thinks so, at least. They, they give it a, its own country. Yep. Well, I guess there'll be plenty more to talk about with Stab in the Dark that we... Another three episodes after this one dropping weekly. 
and we'll hopefully have some some more insights and behind the scenes things to uh, to pass on as we go. The funniest thing is just the dialogue with all the shapers this time of year because shapers uh, they don't have to pay to go and stab in the dark. They submit their boards and it has the potential to be incredible advertising and it's, some shapers have moved a lot of boards based on their results on Stab in the Dark, or certain models that have um, been surfed. But the, uh, the only risk is the completely unbiased feedback that they've got coming at them. And we've all seen that at its most extreme. Uh, that was probably Geordie Smith in in Indonesia, which is always a funny one because everyone's like, oh, why don't you have it in Indonesia? Why don't you have it in Indo all the time? I mean, a lot of us have this assumption that Indo is just perfect every single day, but it's not. There's a lot of there's a lot of subtleties that are ripped there, through there and you'll have days on end of, of not too great of waves. And that's exactly what happened in the Geordie, the Geordie stab in the dark. And I was reminded today by Sam McIntosh that every board that Geordie ditched during his time there in Indo was in shitty waves, including the famous Hayden shapes where he described it as bogging both rails at the same time. This sucks. Have you ever thought I could bog two rails at the same time? It's possible. I don't know, it just digs rail. It digs right up to my neck. That iconic quote. It was in shitty conditions and everybody loved having to be in good waves. So the waves are a, a tricky part, but so far in episode one of this, of Jack series, it's, it's uh, looking pretty much perfect surfboard testing conditions so far. Yeah. You know, the double rail bog gets all the credit, but for me in that Jordy one, it was the waste of a grip quote, <laughs> yeah. which really stuck with me because I felt that. Like, I think that was just more relatable to me. It seemed real. Well, that board sucked. What a waste of a grip. Bogging both rails, that's a funny thing to say, but I was like, I know what it feels like to waste a grip. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. It's 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 horrifying, especially if you really put the effort in to make them stick so they're not going to come up. Because, you know, if a grip comes up six months into its life, you're like, oh, I should have maybe pressurized it a bit more when I put it on. If you go to that effort and then you snap a board, it's, it's a big time waste of a grip. Yeah. Well, so far this year, we haven't wasted any grips, although one of the boards that got ditched in episode one, you might have wanted to you know, save that pad for something else. <laughs> Gruesome Sydney shark attack ends in fatality. I mean, isn't every shark attack kind of gruesome? But this one, I think there's a video involved. Someone just got eaten by a shark. Big great white, that's a great white. Oh man, oh no, oh no. The attack happened just off Little Bay Beach in Sydney's southeast. 13 beaches along a 25-kilometre stretch of coast remain closed today as drones and choppers search for the shark, estimated to be up to five metres in length. We didn't post it because it's just horrifying. I don't see what exposing yourself to that would do for you. But, yeah, gruesome. A fatal shark attack in Sydney this week. It was the first time since 1963. Said to be a five meter great white, and uh, it's super sad. Yeah, it's this one was just 1.5 k's from Maruba Beach, and just over two k's from ours or Cape Salander, the famous wave that the Bra Boys pioneered, and and only 10 kilometers from Bondi Beach, which is is one of the most popular tourist beaches in the world, and and Sydney's 
Australia's most densely populated city by far. So it, yeah, it sends shockwaves through everyone here in Australia. And then, yeah, like you mentioned on top of that, the video, which I didn't click on. I mean, it got sent around absolutely everywhere. I think people can't help but share that thing. And and typically they're pixelated. You see a splash and, and you know, it's never, never great. But this one I was told and part of the reason I chose not to watch it was that you can actually see blood and it was surprising to me that some – like international news sites posted it. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I feel like shark attacks are getting like increasingly difficult for us to even cover at Stab. Mm. Like, it's one thing if it's a surfer and it's a popular wave and it's super surf related, but like you know, we just talked about Stab in the dark for a while. Like that's what we do. That's our bread and butter, right? And I feel like when these shark attacks happen especially if it's not a surfer, which I'm not sure was the case here. I know the guy wasn't surfing at the time, at least. And it's just like, what do you do when something like this happens? It's, it's super confusing. Yeah. When part of what we do is news, it's, it's also hard to ignore. But it is getting difficult to, to say much about it because what can you say? They're just so sad. And Anyway, let's talk about something else because this is too, too much of a bummer. Okay, yeah, let's move on. WSL responds to world champs misleading and unproductive missive. Um, This isn't even a story. This is a saga at this point, and it's incredible. The world champ we are speaking of is Joel Tudor, and we are here today to talk about longboarding. Your favorite topic, Buck? My, it's where my heart uh, lives is in longboarding so I still don't really understand what's happening here like I said it's a saga it keeps evolving but the gist of it is after the the pipeline event which was for my money one of the coolest moments in the history of surfing just for the fact that we had a, a CT event at pipeline from start to finish for the women Somehow this sparked a thing about how women longboarders need to get paid as much as the shortboarders. But he was kind of talking about all longboarders, but he was kind of using the women as like the Trojan horse. The whole thing is incredible. What he keeps posting on his Instagram and tagging the WSL. One of the posts, the first one they launched with, has like nearly a thousand comments. Uh, and it's about trying to pay longboarders as much money as shortboarders because gender equality. Yeah. He, what was really interesting though is the amount of effort that he went to. He was so fired up and he screenshotted all these Instagram posts from the WSL and then compared the numbers from longboarding versus um, typical WSL content stuff and created this extremely flawed but thorough <laughs> <laughs> rationale as to why <laughs> longboard women should get like he really shoehorned in the the gender uh, element which was such a red herring because it, it clearly had nothing to do with anything it was confusing so for anyone who didn't follow this it's it's tricky to summarize but but Joel Tudor I guess one thing you can take away from it, he's extremely fired up just trying to get the gal girls you know equal value paid and to save the longboard tour from one event Simple, it's quick. It's not even like a, like a huge request. It's just, with the girls longboard thing, you can't deny their value. They are the, the majority of the entire activity. So to pay them 
we may not have to give them equal amounts, but you have to pay them their value. And when you actually do the homework and you see how much that they contribute and they, you know, are taken advantage of, it's kind of undeniable. To lay out some facts here, if you win a longboard world tour stop, it's 10K. If you win a CT before the cut this year, they kind of rejigged it. So now it's 80K if you win like Sunset right now, 100K if you win one like G-Land after the cut. And then if you win the finals, you get 200K. And this is all just prize money, of course. A lot of the people that are in the positions to actually win this thing are making 10 times that with their sponsorship deals. But pretty good prize money on the CT these days. And if we want to go like 100K to 10K, uh, I did go a little bit further. I looked at uh, I looked at the day where the longboard world title was decided last year at Malibu. Look back on YouTube, you know, they have it like it's running on a, on a YouTube live page the whole day and then you can kind of rewatch it after the whatever eight, 12 hour day, however long it ends up. And so that got 117,000 views. And then the lowers final where the men's and women's world titles got decided, got just over a million. Uh, there was a Brazilian stream which got 588,000 views and in English it did about 420. Brings you over a million. That 10K, 100,000 thing kind of seems to check out. I mean, I think they got the ratio right. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's the only numbers that actually matter because Instagram numbers are useless. They're, they, I mean, the images that Joel was selecting just to try and validate his longboard argument were all these travel-esque images of, um, of you know, really beautiful scenic locations that really uh, were suited to the Instagram Instagram being a visual medium, it was really suited to the to to what works well on there. So I mean, I was I was really interested to know the difference in the contest numbers that you that you figured out, Buck, and, and that makes perfect sense to me now. Yeah, they got the ratio perfect, right? Um, another funny one about this is somehow the big wave tour was roped into this too. I think Joel said that like they complained and look what happened, they got their tour back. And I read that, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, the big wave tours now just, they have people wear strap-ons and go to Nazare every two months. Like, what, what, is, what big wave tour specifically is back? It's, it's gone. This just didn't happen. Um, yeah, there's another hole in the case there for sure, Your Honor. I also think the motive was a, an interesting one. Like, the WSL are desperate to make money and they're, I don't think they're opposed to running a bigger longboard world tour if they can back it financially, but... Uh, they, uh, clearly they can't. I don't know why Joel thinks this is conspiracy against longboarding. I know that when Surfing Magazine died that he was really quick to jump on their grave. I think it was their final Instagram post because he was really critical of them for never featuring longboarding and he thinks that's actually why they died and he wasn't shy about saying that when they did fold. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's something that he's been super passionate about for a long, long time, Buck. He's, he's fired up about longboarding but in saying that i did hear a story in hawaii that made me it made me reevaluate joel's how fired up he was it made me reevaluate his anger because there was um, a young filmer that was staying in the same house as joel over in hawaii and apparently he woke up feeling a bit hungry ate a banana and then joel came downstairs joel it was joel's banana as you can probably guess where this story is going and he lost his mind Apparently he uh, freaked out at this kid for eating his banana, which I mean I don't agree with him on the WSL argument. I think he I think he hasn't thought that through. But the banana thing, 
I can get on board with. I think that made me relate to him. But I also think he just likes to get fired up a lot over anything. Yeah, the banana one is an interesting case. Like that, I think we'd have to take to the court of law too because my stance on that is if it's the last banana, 100% case. But like if you got a whole bunch and somebody just picks one, even if you have two bananas left, you could eat somebody's banana if there's two, two bananas left. But if it's the sole banana, that's an issue. That said, whenever I've worked in like an actual office space, I've always thought there's nothing funnier than trying to eat somebody else's lunch that they brought there. <laughs> you asshole. It's just such <laughs> so hilarious. I'm just doing it like an anonymous one out of the fridge too. Oh man. I that's dangerous. You could get poisoned if you if you if you try to eat my lunch twice, I'll I'll sabotage you. But I did. I do think it was actually the last banana because I think this this guy went and bought a whole bunch of bananas, smoothed it over, and then everything was good again. But what I love about it is it's just it's just a reminder that that we don't get enough. That we're basically just all monkeys. Like humans, humans share ninety nine percent of our DNA with chimpanzees. And if you're ever trying to do something like difficult or like put together a, an IKEA cabinet or whatever. All you need to remember is that, is that we're just monkeys. Yeah, I think that actually makes it, like, this whole situation pretty clear to me then. Um, they should put more in the prize purse, but they should just pay these people in bananas. <laughs> Imagine if that was how you uh, you resolved everything with Joel, the current longboard world champion. How about a banana? <laughs> He'd be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I'll, take down, I'll, I'll take down the post. Sonic Souvenirs Volume 2, the latest and greatest from Mikey February has just dropped. This thing's 18 minutes long, and I feel like we live in an era where like 18 minutes is a pretty pretty big ask. It's like, oh, okay, you want 18 minutes of my time. This one, do not hesitate. It is fucking great. Give them your 18 minutes right now. Go hand them 18 minutes of your life. Yeah, well said. Uh, and this one is by Blake, Blake Myers. And I just, all I could think when I, when I was reading the credits of this movie is just how good that call must be as a female filmmaker when, you, when you're asked to, to make a film on Mikey February because everything he does just looks so effortlessly good and is almost like a bankable, usable clip. And we just ran a film competition here in Australia. I noticed so many of the young surf filmmakers, their entries included... Craig Anderson, and it wasn't always Craig, you know, doing giant airs or or, or the tricks he can do. It was sometimes he was just racing on a fish or or kind of threading a, a tube in an interesting way. And he's just like he's just so photogenic in the same way that in the same way that Mikey is. So I, I just I was just happy for Blake that he got he got the opportunity and he and he nailed it. Yeah, I noticed that today too. I kind of just thought Kai was doing the whole series, but. Yeah, Blake did this one. It's incredible. Uh, there's a straight air in there that Mikey does on a twin that it's just great. Straight airs on twins are cool. Yeah, to me, to me, Mikey on a twin fin is is just the perfect collaboration, the perfect combination. I actually was reminded today of um, back in 2018 when Mikey was on tour that he wasn't going so well. And Stace Galbraith, who everyone listens to this will know from the cusp that he does with Mikey Saramella, as well as um, Damien Farrenfort, who, or Duma, as he's otherwise known, which was, 
is Mikey's manager. They started encouraging him to, hey, forget about the tour. Let's just start surfing twin fins in heats. And no one's ever done that. And Mikey, I think, was tempted to start to start introducing twin fins into his world tour surfing, which would have been such an amazing spectacle to see. But then he ended up making the quarters at Chopes and, and it sort of reinvigorated his his chance of requalifying. So he kind of ditched that idea. But that would have been that would have been pretty special to see. I do feel like there's something about him and twin fins that it works. But I also feel like you see the guy hop back on a thruster as we saw at Stab High Central America and it's still incredible. Like he's still so fucking good at just surfing a high performance thruster that he, you almost forget. Not me. I don't forget. I'm very intelligent. Uh, I forgot who you, I, I forgot who I was talking to here. The guy that probably hates twin fins and and uh, <laughs> or more that doesn't hate twin fins, but more than anything, just loves. I was wondering why you were staring at me so blankly, blankly as I was saying that. But uh, yeah, it's a good point. He definitely still rips on a thruster, which I know you love, Buck. But you know what? When he went to Hawaii this year, he didn't pack a single single thruster. It was all twins. And Hawaii's not exactly what you think about when you think of twin fin conditions. Mm, mm. Yeah. Hey, what about the waves in this edit though? Because they're just a lot of like interesting beaches and points and and waves that you've just never seen before. Which to me, I, I don't know. When I'm seeing when I'm seeing a wave that I've surfed or a wave that I've seen a lot on film, uh, there's something about it that over time it gets a little bit duller each time, no matter how pumping the surf is. But when you're seeing waves that you know, he's on the west side of Africa. He's in Ghana, over near like Senegal and Beria and these, these places that we see rarely any footage of. And this has been a, the, the spots he surfed, might have, some of them might have never been documented. And there's something about seeing waves that you've never seen before in surroundings you've never seen with no one around that just sends a lightning bolt into your brain. 175 different type of ethnic groups in Ivory Coast. Each of them has rhythms. Each of them has dances. Each of them has new music to use. So imagine if we take that and then build and modernize it. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, this one, it just says straight up where it is. The Ivory Coast. And what I thought was so cool about that is one, just I feel like for a while when you go to a place that like nobody had really been too much before, you tried to kind of hide it a bit. You wouldn't give anything away, really. They just tell you where it is which I thought was really cool. And then the other thing, like like you said, like when you're so familiar with places and waves and you almost have like an expectation, you're like, oh, well, they didn't get this place that good. Like, yeah. which could be the case here. Maybe the waves get way better than what we saw. But I feel like when you see an edit like this, which isn't about like surf, it's not like somebody, the, the narrative is about finding a wave. You know, the waves are just kind of like a given. It makes it almost more interesting rather than somebody being like, well, we think there's a setup here. We're going to go try here. We're gonna, it's just like all of a sudden there's at like that right that they surf. It's just like looks like such a sick wave. And they don't even talk about like how it works or anything. It's just like, oh, there's, it's a given that there's like a really good wave here. Like we don't even just just show it like it's fine. Like it's it's really cool. Hey, do you know Leanne Curran? She's in this video as well as well as Al Nose and a few other a few other African surfers. Do you do you know her? Not too well. Just chatted her a few times. Mm-hmm. No further questions, Your Honor. 
Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I just think she seems like the coolest person in the world. She's like not as weird as a dad, but also just as interesting and mm. rips, obviously. No, I think she is. And especially like when you see, she just always like has this, no matter where she is, she kind of seems natural, whether she's in a tube or in a different country or you know, doing whatever. She made that Vans movie this year. She's just so good. She's so good at music. She's good at everything and like seems just comfortable and natural and cool wherever she is. Yeah. I just... She's she's the coolest person in the world. She just feels like Jesus to me. Like her dad's God and then she comes stumbling along and everyone's like, oh yeah, the fucking boss's son's here or the boss's daughter. Like it's hard. It's a hard position to be in and she just seems to just stroll through that ex- existence so seamlessly and you don't even – I don't even think about um, Tom Curran being her dad and I don't. it doesn't muddy up um, my expectations or, or thoughts about it. Fuck, it's, we probably talked too much about um, Leanne Curran. Let's move on to the next subject. <laughs> <laughs> she is cool though. Lungy Slab is the chosen one. So – this is a great profile written by Jed Smith on Lungi Slab, a 17-year-old Aboriginal surfer from the Gold Coast region. I think I'm allowed to say that, right? Gold Coast region. Yeah, from- it's a little bit further south, but it's actually in a different state to the Gold Coast. But he's he's right there with access to those to those ways that we all we all know from from the Gold Coast Snapper D Bar, and and he rips the shit out of those waves too. Mm. Beautiful style. Oh man, Just he's like, one, he's probably the one of the coolest people I've ever met. Up there with, uh, I mean, I haven't met Leanne Curran yet, but um, you know, that's until I meet her, he, he might take the place. And yeah, he's 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 kind of one of those like instant favorite surfer type people where you just you watch him you watch him surf and he's super unique and stylish and you just kind of like, yep, he uh, he could he could fit right into that lineage of. Craig and Mikey, Rob Machado, those people that effortless, perfect style. They just make you feel bad about how you look on a surfboard. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's the self-hatred they uh, conjure up in you. Yeah, yeah. Just the shame <laughs> that we all live with. Yeah, but big part of this story is uh, about Lungi's family, about his Aboriginal heritage, and then also just the bigger picture of uh, what it means to be Aboriginal in Australia currently and it's uh yeah it can it's it's i mean to be straight up it can be pretty bleak you know like there's a really dark history and and there's still um, i mean if you look at the health statistics currently it's a it's a crazy um epidemic but lungi's story is i i encourage everyone to go check it out and learn a little bit about him and we've also actually got a soundbite from jed smith who wrote the story so we'll throw to that part Hi there, Jed Smith here, the Stab Journalist. This week I contributed a profile on the young Indigenous man, the young Indigenous beacon of light that is Lungi Slab, um, better known up around Cool and Gadda and Fingal Head as just the ultra talented natural footer, ultra stylish uh, shades of Asher Pacey and lots of the great 
surfing and point break icons from that era. He, uh, he looks every bit at home uh, amongst those greats, Steph Gilmore, Fanning, Parkinson, um, albeit with a different flow, and he's still very young, so plenty of uh, maturing in his surfing and personality to go, but uh, already he's just leaving an incredible mark on surf culture and uh, indigenous culture and white culture for that matter. Um, He's really combining these three things into something that's been an incredibly potent force for good. Um, You know, his family uh, basically have created as good a blueprint as you can imagine for surviving colonialism uh, and capitalism, uh, which has proved really difficult for a lot of Indigenous peoples all over the world. Uh, Australia's First Nations people are definitely in that uh, in that category and, and, you know, are actually among the most marginalised people on earth and uh, topping the list of a number of really concerning statistics, incarceration rates, infant mortality, obesity, um, and Lungi and his family have just created this incredible framework for surviving that and and flourishing and it all kind of centres around the surf, the ocean, connection to country, uh, connection to culture, traditional culture, uh, mixed with bits of Christianity, bits of, uh, you know, capitalism and contemporary culture. Uh, And it's just, it was an incredibly enlightening experience to sit with Lungi and learn about his family's history in that part of the world how they've managed to create such a positive blueprint uh, for his people. And, yeah, so, mate, credit to the Slab family, uh, credit to all the, the mob out there at Fingal, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, credit to Quicksilver and the surfing community, Steph Gilmore, Mick Fanning, for getting in behind the family there and supporting him. It's a great story. I hope you read it. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I hope you can contribute something positive uh, to, if not the Slab family, then the First Nation people in whatever shape or form that takes. Uh, might just be, uh, yeah, just s- some basic acknowledgements of history and um, I think it would go a long way and, and some honest conversations. So anyway, hope this is another of them. Add it to the list. Cheers. All right, folks. It's a very special time. It's time for the surf sin. As always, we have an interesting case here. Uh, Danny, imagine him right now. Actually, no, don't imagine him in his suit because this you don't need a suit in this, in this cathedral that we uh, live in for this podcast. Anyway, this one comes down to water slapping, which we'll listen to it and then we'll dissect it. But water slapping, I, I have some notes on this. So let's get into it and then let's, uh, let's figure out what to do here. All right, this one's from Nathan Churches, who easily has the best surf scene name so far. Let's, let's hear what Nathan has got to say, Mr. Churches. What's up, Danny and Buck? Uh, I love the surf scene concept. Here's mine. I'm a water slapper. Uh, maybe this is something that everyone does to some degree. Uh, maybe I'm unique. I don't know. Uh, here's how it works. Uh, when I'm in the lineup and there's a guy ahead of me, I'll wait for a wave that I know isn't going to work. I know it's a turd but it might just be sellable. And so when the wave starts to approach and people start to go check it out, when I'm outside of the periphery of the guy ahead of me, I'll start slapping the water. So I'm just sitting there slapping the water. I have no intention of going, but I make it sound like I'm gonna take the wave out from under the guy. Uh, The guy in the point position will uh, 
you know, have his ego activated. He'll turn it and try to go. And uh, he's out of the lineup, usually on a turd. So I would say that, you know, this works about 99% of the time on kooks. It works, you know, 50 to 60% of the time on your average surfer and your friends. And it works 0 to 10% of the time on real rippers. Uh, you know, it's a bit of an asshole move, but at the same time, it's crowded out there. You got to do what you got to do, right? Um, so do you guys think it's a sin? If it's a sin, then it's kind of like masturbation, and I'll need a long-term penance plan because I definitely don't plan on stopping anytime soon. Hey, Buck, I fucking love that. That is genius. I'm borderline on whether we can even give that a, a penance or not. Okay, so we saw this one come in, and it said water slapping, right? And obviously, Kelly does his water slapping thing, which is very different. Mm. But he even did it right at the end of the Pipe Masters where he started splashing the water. He had won the thing. He'd won. Um, but imagine that he just ended and that was that. Not really a... Wouldn't, that moment in the awards ceremony and everything wouldn't happen if it just ended with like a lull, right? I don't think. Or it wouldn't have been as like crazy. So he starts splashing the water like he always does. The wave comes. And I'm like, fuck, what? Just a Kelly moment, right? Like how? It's crazy. Let's re- now let's rewind back to last Saturday. The waves were pumping here in France. Tide was kind of getting higher. I got a few early in the session. I'm kind of like, I want to go in. And I didn't want to end on like a shit wave. And I'm like, what if I just kind of, you know? <laughs> Flick the water a little bit, get going, a couple little splashes, and I'm not I'm like, should I try to hide this? There's like some other people out. I'm like, oh, like I want to be have people looking at me doing this. And I was like, nah, don't care. Be like Kelly, you gotta really just like say fuck it and you splash. So I had some good splashes. Sure enough, a set comes. I get another good wave and my session. I'm like, holy shit, this is one for one. I'm one for one with this now. This works, and I'm like almost tempted to like go back out or try it again the next day and i'm like no this is just like use in a case of emergency that's it type thing so i just it's not really relevant to the surf sim but i just want to report that Uh, if anybody else has any findings on this feel free to share them with us but i have to say that i'm one for one with water slapping to conjure up a set and it's just something i'm going to use in special cases only i like that now the sin the sin. Danny, you love it. I wouldn't be giving it away. I don't know if this guy knows that we've got at least 700 million listeners to this podcast. And I feel like this one, I'll tell you why I love it. Because it's just so low effort. It's pretty easy to try and sell someone into a way, but it normally involves lying down, having a little scurry paddle off to the side. But this guy's just sitting there just splashing away. The way he broke down the analytics as well, we got stats based on the the, the skill level of the surfer that you're you're sharing the lineup with and how effective it'll be. So I think the crime that he's committed, the sin that he's committed, is he's probably overdoing it. Like I said with my Kelly water slap thing, I'm only going to do it in special cases. And I think this is just something that you have to only pull out when you really need a wave. If you do it the entire session every time, you're overdoing it. That's not fair. That's not good. That's a sin. And so my penance for him is to realize that it's a powerful thing what he's doing, manipulating the human brain. 
to get more in touch with that, I think he needs to surf a wave that is not a wave until, without speaking, he can get somebody else to surf it with him. Um, this could be like a different stretch of a certain beach. It could be its own beach entirely, but I think he needs to go somewhere where he's never seen anybody else try to catch a wave and surf it until somebody else is like, oh shit, there's a guy out there. I'm gonna go surf there, I guess. Yep, that's a great penance. But yeah, I think you're right. I think I think he might be overdoing it, and that might also affect his like fitness because that's a big part of surfing is is trying to trick people to catch waves. My penance is just that he has to do one push up just to keep that uh, fitness up there. Wow, gentle, gentle. Well, I think that's with with that one he can do both, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you don't get to you don't get to like ignore yours. Yours is too good. So he's got to do one push up and. Try and sucker some um, some suckers into surfing a wave that isn't a wave. <laughs> uh, good luck with that. Um, good luck. Thanks, Buck. And thanks to anyone who has sent a surf scene in. Please keep them coming. Our episodes are in the... Uh, our episodes are in the episode description. Danny at stabbag.com or Buck at stabbag.com, whoever you prefer. Now let's hear from Mike and Stace on the results from Sunset and what's next. And welcome back to the Stab Cusp. That is the currently untitled surf podcast. I am your host, Michael Saramello, with my co-host, Stace Galbraith. And we're just coming off the back of a four-day swell bender at Sunset. Um, straight through men's and women's. Obviously, we saw wildcard Baron Mamiya and first-time CT winner Brisa Hennessy win not just the event, but also go on to claim the yellow jersey going into the third event of the year, Portugal. There is tons to talk about. So, uh, Stacey, where do you want to start? Dopamine levels and serotonin levels have been squeezed to within an inch of um, their lives, Mikey. Uh, where do I want to start? Well, I'm, I'm happy that there's a, a little break, but I'm actually pretty stoked that the, the break isn't too much. February is a short month, and... Portugal starts on uh, March the 3rd, which is a much uh, more kind of beer-friendly time zone to watch surfing here in Australia as opposed to coffee at 4am. So, yeah, where should we start with sunset? Holy moly, I can't even believe the top five right now. I think uh, after Pipe, I felt I was living in an alternate surfing universe and my feeling hasn't really changed on that. It's Yeah, it's so crazy. right now I'm just going to read through the men's and women's top five on the championship tour. So first place in the men's, Baron Mamiya, obviously a wild card, has never even been full-time on the CT before. Second is Kanoe Igarashi. Third, Seth Moniz. Fourth, Kaioi Belli, who has been on the tour before, but is currently a wild card, replacing Gabriel Medina. And fifth is 50-year-old Robert Kelly Slater. On the women's side, we have first, Brisa Hennessy, who again had never won a CT event before sunset. Second, Malia Manuel. Third, Moana Jones-Wong, another wild card. Three wild cards in the top five between the men and women. Uh, fourth is Carissa Moore, and fifth is Joanne DeFay. So, yeah, I mean, imagine somebody, you know, claimed they'd, like, come from the future and were like, you need to put all your money on this being the standings after event two in 2022. Like, you would have fucking laughed your ass off at that person. 100,000%. And I think that... Begs the, begs the bigger question, you know, what did we think of Sunset? I, I loved it. I, you know, pending a swell, I, I was always looking forward to it because it is such a, it is just such a surf-averse ocean kind of wave and the people that have rhythm out there and know what's going on really 
really seemed to stand out above the rest. And uh, yeah, the overlapping heats out there is um, bar a few minor glitches from a few surfers. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But I think yeah, overlapping heats out there is insane. And I yeah, I, I loved it. So sunset forever. What about you, Mike? I feel completely differently. Um, I recognize like the intrigue that this event brought to the tour. And I can't deny that. But in the sense of like, do I feel like I need to sit down and watch people surf waves because I'm so excited by them? Not at all for me at sunset. Like pipeline, I can't leave my couch or wherever I'm sitting. Like sunset, I just, I don't know. I'm just kind of in and out of the room. I'm, you know, I'm obviously following who's doing well and making sure I watch like the replays of the best waves, but it's just such a strange wave and yeah, for me, it, it doesn't bring that excitement level of just the sheer surf fan wanting to watch people surf waves. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a wave that really um, highlights what you don't have. If, if you're missing something in your in your repertoire, whether that be a bit of courage or a carving turn or how to ride an open ocean barrel or, you know, we didn't see too many of them in this event, but there's just, Sunset's got so many warts that you have to conquer and it's for me it's amazing when you see a surfer you know whether it's matt mcgivoray or you know on another level to that is ethan ewing how they just connect with that wave and make it look surfable because it's not surfable for us <laughs> or any mere mortal um, i think that's all right i just have a lot of respect for, for surfers like that and um yeah it's uh it's the best event to coach at as well. I'm super bummed I'm not there. It's it's amazing to sit in the channel. You know, you can quite often you'll have, you can paddle out of heat early because, you know, most of the surfers are fans. So if they they can see a Kelly paddling out or a John paddling out, they're like, oh, you know, we'll go out 15 early and catch the end of their heat or whatever, you know, it's, it's pretty Yeah, sick. and to be clear, I guess, like, I see the value in it as a stop on tour. I think it is a really good test of the surfers to do a different type of surfing. I just, from a spectator standpoint, like, I don't really care about it that much. So, like, I'm fine with it being on tour, but it's not an event that I'm going to, like, ooh and ah over as much as, you know, a pipeline or a G-Land or even maybe, like, a lowers, you know, more high performance. So, that's just me. Um, but, again, it brought us so many interesting narratives to talk about that I kind of love it in the podcast sense. So, um, where do we start? Do we, do we go right for the throat with uh, the Kelly interference call? Yeah, why not? It, he's, he's your favorite person on earth, so we can get straight into it. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know what? I actually, let me, let me put a little caveat to that. I want to start with rules as a whole for the WSL because I think this is a bigger issue. People are making it about a specific incident, but I think we have a bigger rules issue looming over the WSL right now. And to kind of give some context to it, I want to talk about a heat that happened earlier in the event. Um, I believe it was the second round, or the, sorry, the second heat of the second round for the men, so elimination round. It was Owen Wright versus Billy Kemper versus Morgan Sibillic. Um And you might be thinking that I'm going to call out the interference in that, and I'm actually not, because to my eye, that was an, an interference. Owen clearly did not have priority. Billy did. He hadn't caught a wave that whole heat. Um, and... Owen took off and crossed his line not once but twice and clearly like took a, a line that it ne didn't necessarily impede Billy, but it would have made Billy think twice about what part of the wave he was going to hit, and I think that that's enough to warrant an interference. 
However, something happened earlier in this heat that I think was more telling about there being a little disconnect between sort of reality and rulebook. Um, around the 24 minute mark in the heat, Owen was the only surfer who had caught a wave. He had a two wave heat total of 8.2. And as a result, he was out the back with third priority because Morgan and Billy had not yet caught a wave. And therefore they basically had priority over Owen, but didn't have priority amongst themselves. So around that 24 minute mark, a set came through and the first wave, Billy and Owen sort of made a motion toward the wave. They paddled deeper. It was a white watery wave and they paddled deeper to get in position for it. Uh, Billy was deeper than Owen and Owen also realizing that he didn't have priority over Billy. He pulled back when he realized that Billy was making a concerted paddle. That wave fizzled out as Billy was trying to paddle into it and he didn't catch it. Now you would think just logical priority rules knowing surfing that that would mean that Billy then goes to third priority, Owen goes to second, Morgan goes to first. However, that's not the case. And the way that the rule book is written is that essentially, if there's a three-man heat and one person has caught a wave and two people have not caught a wave, those two people can paddle for as many waves as they want and priority doesn't switch. They, they stay in a non-priority state, but over the person with third priority which to me makes absolutely no sense. And then what that resulted in is on the very next wave of that set, Morgan was then positioning to get into the spot for it, but Billy was still deeper because he'd paddle for that first wave. So Billy turns around, he tries to take off in the white water. Meanwhile, Morgan's on the shoulder, like the proper takeoff spot. Morgan stands up, he's standing at the top of the wave, looking nervously over his shoulder to see if Billy's gonna emerge from the white water and stand up because he doesn't wanna get an interference. Billy doesn't get out, but Morgan kicks out just out of fear of Billy coming out and giving him an interference. The craziest thing is how what this results in, which is Morgan going to third priority because technically he stood up on that wave. Owen going to second priority because he was with third priority, but then Morgan stood up and Billy going to first priority after paddling for and essentially blocking each surfer on the two waves that had come through in that set. To me, that is absolutely ass backwards Billy, even after the first one, in a logical sense, I think should have gone to third priority. But again, the judges got it right. They're going by the rule book, which says that, you know, like what I said before, essentially. So I really think that the WSL needs to take a look at that rule and realize that if there are three people in a heat and one of them has caught a wave and two have not, and that third person, the person who's already caught the wave, is back out in the lineup. If one of the two surfers without priority makes a concerted effort for a wave, they should go to third priority. Um, can I get your thoughts on this? Do you agree, disagree? 100% agree. Great investor to give journalism there, Mikey. Um, look, plain and simply, if that was a two-man heat, exactly what you're saying should happen, would have happened. And I can't see there being any difference because there's a third surfer in the water. It shouldn't detriment that third surfer. Owen is then just a sitting duck. You know, um, priority was priorities brought in for a reason. Um, and... You know, um, we saw that with Kanoa Igarashi and Mick Fanning at Trestles. Um, and the reason why that heat was resurfed was because it was deemed that Kanoa had blocked Mick from getting a wave. Um, now, in this situation, you've got a surfer there. Um, you know, let's call it surfer in white. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter about names and that. It's, it's just three-man heat, a surfer paddles twice. That's, that's all it is. And it just seems a little kind of... 
suits Billy, you know, big, strong Hawaiian power surfer. He can, he can handle the lineup, no drama. But that's not why Priority was brought in. Priority was brought in to create a fair rotation. And, and I think that in that situation, um, you know, I said it before and I'll say it again, you know, rules are rules and some rules suck. And that one is definitely, I can't, I just can't see any logic in that. I can't see with the direction the sport's heading in. I just can't see that that is where we're at in 2022. Yeah, and it has like, although it didn't directly, I, I don't think you could say lead to the interference. You know, it has a butterfly effect where, you know, if Billy does catch one of those waves, then it changes the rotation and, and things wouldn't have gone how they went were that rule different you could say owen still made a mistake he didn't have priority in that situation billy did and he went around him twice so that's fine but yeah ultimately i think the wsl just needs to take a look at that rule again and that brings us to slater so again we saw this rule the first time that i saw this rule implement implemented was back in 2018 when it happened to italo ferreira at bells you remember he went around jordy really similar situation to the kelly thing um kelly oh sorry we should explain the kelly thing just in case anybody missed it or needs a refresher so kelly is in the non-priority heat meanwhile john florence is in the priority heat meaning that um basically his heat has priority over kelly's heat regardless of the circumstances um john is looking for a score at the end of the heat to get past jake marshall john surfs one wave realizes he's not going to get the score kicks out he paddles back out and on his way back out, another wave arrives. Now, Kelly had taken off on this wave maybe 75 feet deeper, not knowing that John was going to go. He couldn't have possibly known that John was going to go. So once he does realize that John is going to go, he gets out of John's way in the most like efficient way possible without ins- like ensuring that he wouldn't actually physically be in John's way when he decides to stand up. And the best way to do that was to go around him and kick off the shoulder. If Kelly had straightened out, John could have ridden straight into him in the whitewater. So Kelly did everything he could to make sure that he did not impede John's line. However, he did cross over his line. And that is, if you look into the rule book, just a hard line. Like there's nothing, like if you cross a surfer's line and you don't have priority, that is an interference. And like I said, we first saw this 2018, Bells, Itola Ferrer did it to Jordy Smith, lost a heat that he should have won easily. Um, I wrote about it back then. I was kind of against the rule and... I think that the Kelly situation is an even better example. Like Kelly, I don't even think if you asked John, like, did you see Kelly on that wave? I don't think he would have had any idea that Kelly Slater was ever on that wave. Kelly came from around a section that John wouldn't have seen. And then by the time John was out of the whitewater, Kelly was completely off the wave. His wake wasn't there. There was absolutely no way that he impeded on John. But again, the judges by the book called it right. That was an interference on Kelly which means that we need to take a look at the book and decide if this is how we want to run surfing. And to me, like, you know, the sport's always evolving. Back in the day, we used to have a rule where if you took off on the same swell line as a surfer who had priority, even if they're 200 yards down the beach going in an opposite direction, that's an interference. And of course, over time, surfers and event organizers realized how ridiculous that rule was, and they changed it. And I think that we need to have that same mindset today and just really think about the term interference, right? It implies that you're having some negative impact on another person. Interference, interfere. And that's just not the case here. So I think that we need to strip this rule back a little bit and just think about it logically. If a surfer doesn't interfere or impede with another surfer, they should not get an interference. And yeah, that's pretty much my take on it. What do you think? 
Well, yeah, the progress is generally slow, though, because they changed that rule from it being an interference to if you rode the same swell line 400 metres apart, you'd still get a zero. And that's why Luke Munro was robbed against Andy Irons at the 2000-and-something Quickie Pro back in the day um, because Andy took off on him down the line and Munro had belted the wave all the way to the shore, but he got a zero because Andy took off on the wave with Pryor. Anyway, progress will be slow, Mikey. But on progress, our whole sport is subjective and I just cannot wrap my head around the fact that this rule is not subjective. <laughs> it's just, it's like, fuck. Why is this one set in stone? Why is, why? And Because not all interferences are set in stone. Just this one. And it's almost like we aren't a white line sport, but in this rule, you do have a very definitive wording of the rule um, that I think just lent on way too heavily. If you want to talk about crossing a line, there was no line from Kelly because it got mowed down by the whitewash. <laughs> so technically, John didn't cross any line. So, what do you what do you want to do? I don't know. It seems a little bit um, seems a little bit like we've never really followed the rule book in surfing. If that makes sense, I don't think. To, if you know what I mean, like there's always so much grey area, except for this one rule. And this one rule has the most grey area, you know, or the most opportunity for you know things to go a little bit awry and and just use a bit of common sense there's no way that kelly interfered with john on that wave it's that simple so we'll see but you know like kelly said he he um he made the wrong decision he knows the rules this is his format so you know going back to the surfer uh he he knew what he'd done uh although it was a hard call um he seemed to be fine with it and I thought he made a really good point in where his head's at, and which is just crazy to think how sharp he still is, obviously. But he spoke about if he jumped earlier in that wave, if he jumped and pin dropped off, there's every chance that he would have got picked up and lifted up by the whitewash and moved across onto John's line anyway, which is such a fair call. Like the, the water and everything in the ocean is moving so much at sunset. You get steamrolled out there. You know, you jump off in one spot and end up 300 meters down the line because the waves dragged you there. So I think for Kelly to do what he did was the most sensible and least interfering way possible. So yeah, I don't, he just, he can't, he can't win there. Um, and he probably wasn't going to win that heat anyway because Matty McGilvray dropped a nine pretty much straight off the bat. So as far as that's concerned, I don't think it would have changed the result, but the rules certainly... Um, yeah one. so obviously people the first instinct was to call out the judges as we all do and then it's a lot of fun to do that but kind of knowing this i really think it's like a matter of we need to be looking at the top people at the wsl rather than the foot soldiers you know like it's it's the rule book it's the the thing that is set in stone like the judges have no say on this like is exactly what we're talking about I, I completely, I completely disagree. And you, you know, you, you're saying that there's some sort of hierarchy there that the judges get given a rule book at the start of every year and read it. Who do you fuck think writes the thing, mate? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, there's got to be somebody, right? That's like the the general. Oh. <laughs> the judges write the rule. Oh, book. Wow. okay. Well, <laughs> it's not. It's you know, Dave Proden is worried about marketing and image. He's not writing the rule. Okay. Book. Well, there's. You know, I was trying to do the judges a favor, but um, apparently they're not doing themselves any <laughs> nah. favor. So. No, I think they do a great job most of the time, and I think you know it's the most thankless job in the world. And for sure, they they get it right, um, you know, more often than not. But what are we ever sport if we can't pick apart some judging every now and again? Every other sport <laughs> does it, and I think surfing's a bit soft in that respect. True. So. Okay, fair enough. Come on, boys, 
I guess if you're the judges, like the reason that you try to make these rules so black and white is so that you almost can't be culpable. But in the end, it does the whole sport a disservice and everything that they do needs to be toward the betterment of the sport. So yeah, just fucking change the rule. Next year, those two rules should be altered or else we're going to be thrown a stink again. So it's up to you guys. I definitely think your first one is going to end up in a in a board meeting. Oh, I hope for so. Sure. I don't know about the second one, but the first one will for sure. Has to, if they're not already you talking about it. You think they'll be playing a cusp in HQ over there? Yeah, they'll be playing some sound bites. Um, <laughs> well, the gap, they, you know, it's the, the, the true hallmark of a champ <clears throat> is how many rule changes you get in your career. So see how you go, Mikey. Yeah, I, Gabby's got one or two. I'm sure uh, Who? who uh, Jeremy's two. got a couple maybe. Well, Jeremy's been on the receiving end of a couple, um, but yeah, Gabriel definitely has two, and it comes back to what we we're talking. It comes about what we we're talking about earlier, in that Gabriel surfed around Julian in France, and that's where that interference came from. Even though you know, getting back to that scoring potential, that wave was absolutely dog shit. There was no scoring potential on that wave. Julian should have never been anywhere near it. Um, but yeah, it's just the way it goes. All right, so let's get all this logistical shit out of the way now um and let's focus on what actually happened in this event because it was insane so just to i guess bring a few things back that people may or may not have remembered first of all john florence loses in round three to jake marshall um round three for the women's seven of eight white jerseys emerge victorious that is insane that means carissa moore is out um steph gilmore is out like it yeah it's just it was truly a bloodbath yeah, for me, the most surprising result out of the whole draw and the Hawaii leg, to be fair, is Courtney Conalog. I, I just cannot believe she loses heats out there. It's just remarkable to me. Um, I, I think that she's such an underrated talent in big waves. And um, for me, out of all those heats, I just, yeah, that's the one that I just scratch my head and go, wow. She just needs to get to the end of a couple of waves. The way she takes off, air dropping out of the lip, hitting the biggest sections possible, um, you know, looking for the angry sections, looking for the big waves. It's what the judges want to score. She just has to stay on her feet. So for me, like, Courtney losing is more surprising than John losing. Hey, Stace, listen, I know that you're bummed that your pick didn't do well, but it's, they can't change the scores now. So you're, you're arguing into a big old echo chamber. Nah, go back and watch her heats, mate. I actually forgot that I even picked her. I just back her so hard when the waves get big. Not a, not the biggest fan when the waves get small, but when the waves are big, I just think that she she off. If you if you look at what the judges score in women's surfing, that's the blueprint. She just needs to stay on her feet. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. There was so much carnage, and um, I I owe a massive apology to all the women rookies on tour. Um, we did a podcast that um, had some technical issues with it that didn't get aired. Um, but in that episode, I think we both pretty well tore them to shreds. So I'm apologizing. Uh, well done, rookie women. Um, you all tore. And, uh, you know, my hat's off. And um, it, was, it was great to see. Yeah, well, let's, let's go into that a little bit. So obviously the big story of this year has been rookies and wild cards. Um, we've seen huge performances on both sides from surfers who we didn't really expect at waves that we didn't really think suited them. Um, obviously Samuel Poupeau did amazing at pipeline. And then we just saw Baron Mamiya surf 
freaking at a wave that he rarely ever surfs, despite the fact that it's just down the road from him, and he wins over the best surfers in the world. So is this like, is this a pivot point in surfing in your eyes? Or is this a bit of an anomaly? We're just in like a weird kind of two event period and things will shift back to normal after this. What usually happens with these big surges or even individual surges is that they have a streak of brilliance. They recalibrate, the judges recalibrate, and then they go again. So for sure, I think we're in a hot streak. And I, I don't see that ending anytime soon, particularly if you look at Baron going into Portugal. That suits him down to a T. It's, it's actually more suited to him than, say, Sunset. You know, big barrels and big air ramps. That's, that's right up his alley. Um, so I don't really see his hot streak, you know, ending anytime soon. And, and neither for the women. Like, Betty Lou and Gabrielle O'Brien, they are hitting the lip. They're carving hard. They're taking off on big waves. They're just doing everything right so for sure i can definitely see a little uh a little hot streak about to about to happen but then i think if you know if you use caroline marx as an example um it's really hard to maintain that so you've you, you know and i think that's what makes the champion so good is that you got to keep reinventing the wheel the hot streaks you know to quote uh conor mcgregor's coach john cavanagh said something along the lines of uh failure isn't fatal and success isn't final so you got to keep ripping yeah i mean you look at uh last year's top five we obviously saw morgan sibilic have this crazy rookie run right and he finished fifth in the world right now he's 31st he's had a last place and a second to last place and even the men's number four last year connor coffin he's at 27th place both of them are below the cut line right now um Looking at number three, Italo Ferreira, he is, where is Italo? He's tied for 16th. Um, John Florence is barely within the top 10. And obviously, Gabriel Medina is a no-show. So we have, oh, sorry, Felipe Toledo is in seventh. So we have one surfer from last year's top five who is in the top 10 this year, which is pretty insane. On the women's side, we have two yeah on the women's side we have two we have just carissa moore and joanne defay in the top five um obviously steph missed pipe but she's all the way down at 16th right now tatiana weston webb number two last year is below the cut line at 14 um it is it's pretty wild and i mean there's a lot of tour left to be surfed but there is also a mid-year cut that like these top tier you know elite perennial title contender surfers they need to take that seriously. Like, I don't think, like, the way I understand it, there will be no wild cards that get onto the second half of the tour. You may get a wild card onto the front half of the 2023 tour, but if you want to surf in the back half of the tour and have a chance to be in the title race, you need to get above the top 10 women and top 22 men. Every single rookie on the women's tour is inside the cut line. That is unbelievable after those two events i did not see that happening i think we both picked two maybe three if we're being generous um that is unbelievable so for sure these these older you know veterans on tour and particularly with the women going into a wave like portugal it's game on because they can't pull the experience card there portugal's a new event for the women well you know, newish. It's been on before and went off, and then they had one event there last year where it was, you know, it's a beach break. Anything can happen. So, it's for me. I don't see them. You know, not until they get to Bells, 
would I really expect, you know, your Steph Gilmore's and your Carissa's to have, you know, or Tyler to have like a massive advantage. It's, you know, and then, then the cut is just around the corner after Margaret River, which is an absolute, you know, really fun wave if you get in rhythm with it. But that, that wave can leave you lost at sea as well. So, you know, this tour is looking sketchy for the women. Got to get going. Big result in Portugal for those veterans, I'm calling. <laughs> yeah, and I think Bells is probably one where they'll do well also. But we said the same thing about Pipe and Sunset, so who knows? Sorry, what I meant to say was they need a big result in Portugal. I don't know if they're going to get it. <laughs> I'd like to think they were going to get <laughs> yeah. it, but they, if they don't get it there, I, you know, Bells is the only one where I would say they would be certain of a result, but not Portugal. Portugal's sketchy. Heaps of closeouts. Heaps of weird days, you know. Yeah, All right, can so we saw a ton of waves surfed in the last week, and obviously we have two event winners, but, you know, there's the person who wins the event, and then there's the person who stands out in your mind as, like, the top performer. So who were those people on the men's and women's side of the draw for you that you thought were actually just doing the best surfing on the wave? It was so good to see Ethan Ewing put some heats together. Um just incredible uh you know one of the only guys that can surf a six up to an eight out there maybe maybe the only one and i I, you know i know there's a lot of good surfers out there but i think barton lynch made a call that ethan got a wave against kanoa in the semi where ethan's wave was a lot flatter and he was doing some carving turns and, and barton sort of made the call that uh you know there's no chance of ethan falling on any one of those calves and i just completely disagree with that i think he's going so fast he's on edge the whole time and the reason why he's getting such big scores is because no one is carving like him um it is just poetry in motion and something that uh I love watching and it fucking brings a tear to my eye. Yeah, I uh, I was also really impressed by Ethan. I was cheering for him to win when uh, when Zeke fell out. But I have to say, I was really impressed by Kanoa. You know, maybe those, those singular turns aren't as sharp as Ethan's, but the way he was putting waves together was so impressive to me. Like, the way he was picking waves and, like, just so solid on his feet, just completely stuck to his board. And frankly, I did not think that there was a way that he could lose the final. Like the way he was surfing heats and putting waves together, like I just thought Baron had no chance whatsoever. And then, of course, you know, sunset, things happen. Um, But to me, like he looked so confident. And I think he probably, if you look at the average heat scores, I think he had the highest average heat score throughout the entire event. Yeah, he was certainly uh, pretty spot on. So, yeah, big shout out to uh, Shinya Dalby there, who left Kanoa right at the top of his fantasy team. So uh, hopefully that took him to a big win. (laughs) <laughs> well done and then uh what about the women i know obviously um you had malia in the final that she didn't pick her but she's obviously your favorite surfer on many levels this was her seventh ct final and her i hate to say it but her seventh ct final loss um yeah how do you how do you kind of like figure that fuck <laughs> so fucking gnarly like i just you know she's in good spirits like text me straight away i'm running out of fingers to count my seconds on so you know water off a duck's back for her she she's been here before she knows um but for sure thought this was going to be the one out of all of them she's the most experienced i personally thought whoever won semi number one between gabriella and malia would win the event and so i was stoked to see malia get the jump there and um yeah one of those things where uh, yeah, it's a, it's a stinger, but, um, you know, she's been working closely with Reynos Hayes the last couple of events, and, um, you know, they're on a great roll. Second in uh, Mexico, fifth at Pipe, second at Sunset. 
you, you take that. And I know it stings. There's been, you know, she's had a lot of finals. But it's just, oh, man, one of those things. And you know what? The judges were loving her too. Like, kind of didn't think she won that opening exchange, to be fair. I thought Breeze's first wave had a nice turn in the lip. Malia was, you know, nice and carvy, but just going on the theme, I kind of thought Malia's score was going to come under. So when it came over, I was thinking, this is it. This is the one there, you know, they're, they're loving her by half a point today. Whereas sometimes with Malia, they're against a Steph or a Carissa, they generally hold her down, you know, for good reason. They're obviously two pretty, pretty red hot surfers, but in this one, it just seemed like she had the, uh, the rub of the green as they say, but fuck not to be. Yeah. One of the things that, um, the commentators were saying, they were actually being pretty subtly critical of Malia in the sense of just simply how hard she was, or in this case was not pushing in relation to Brisa. Do you think that that comes into it? And do you like, I mean, she was clearly like Brisa was turning harder. There's no ifs, ands or buts, but to you, is that like a decision thing on Malia's front? Is that a strength thing? And is that something that you guys talk about? Yeah. Like people want to surf a certain way. So you've got to enable that and get them to go to their strengths. Um, and, you know, I'm not working closely with Malia at all through Hawaii, you know, depending on what happens through Australia, th- that might be a different story, but, you know, I'm going to leave that to her and Reynos and how they want to attack the wave, but working previously with Malia, y- you can't, you-, you can't change the way a person surfs. You can, you can show them a few different things. And I think you saw that from Malia in this event where you know the the layback turn against Gabriella Bryan at the end of the seven three three like that that's a fucking layback. I don't think I've ever seen a, a woman do a turn like that uh, in that part of the wave and and really draw it out. You know most of the laybacks you see they go out onto the face and bring them back. <clears throat> that one's right in the pocket. And she had another turn earlier in the event on the end of an eight five a big up into the lip. And so we definitely talk about needing to do more of that. And that's just the way it goes. Could she have surfed her 6.33 any better? I don't think so. That wave was pretty shouldery. You're just going to carve on that wave. So it's it's one of those things where probably would like to see her turn in the lip more often. But you got to ride the waves that, that come your way. So it's just one of those things. Opportunities versus what's possible. Yeah. And as for Breezer turning harder... Yeah, maybe not. Maybe earlier in the comp, but I don't think so in the final. I saw a lot of getting early to the lip and turning under it. So I'm not sold that she was turning harder in the final. Uh, or, or you know, massive respect to Breeze. She won that heat, no doubt in my mind. And um, she's beaten Malia before, so that potentially might have you know played into Malia's psyche there with the clock counting down. But um, you, you think Breeze was turning harder in the final? Yeah, I think so. I think she gets a little bit lower to her board and is maybe a little bit fuller of like, you know, just like thicker legs. I don't know, you know, that's just on eyesight, mm. but... Yeah, it's a, it's a good point you make and it's something that, you know, I personally have definitely overlooked with coaching professional surfers, whether it be Malia or, you know, anyone else. Getting low is such a big asset and it's something that Malia is not the tallest surfer, you know, she rides boards at a 5'6". But it was sort of only just recently, or two seasons ago, <clears throat> that we started talking about getting low. It never really crossed my mind. Um, and I think that's something that all surfers, whether it be a beginner or a pro, you can always you can always tap back into that. Because I think getting low, that's the secret. That's that's where you find extra power, extra control, and, and more options. If you're low coming off the bottom, you can snap, carve, or air. 
But if you're if you're upright, you can't you can do a bong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, so getting getting low is crucial. Yeah. So yeah, for short fellas like self, Mikey, let's That's get low, enough. brother. All right, and one more person that I actually want to bring up that I we kind of touched on, but I sort of neglected. I've been really impressed with the way that Kylie Belly looks. Um, he's on new boards, he's on rusties, and they just look so fast. And he looks to like have them, like he's like out of control but under control at the same time. If that makes sense, like he's hitting sections super late. Doesn't seem like he should be able to hit it there, and then he like brings it back under his feet somehow, and it looks dramatic. But he also looks like he knows exactly what he's doing, and I've I've never seen him surf this well. Kyo's underground gnarly. Um... I genuinely thought he was the best surfer in that final at Bells that year that he got second to Geordie. Um, I think Geordie, Geordie won that heat pretty fair and square, but Kaio had one wave in there that was like, holy shit, if this guy gets another wave, he's going to put Geordie to bed. It didn't end up happening, but he's crazy. He's a really, really good surfer, crazy tube rider. When I got that two-footer head dip out the box, he was out there that day. Um, just, you know, there were some larger sets that I was steering well clear of, but he was looking for him and just air dropping out of the lip getting crazy deep um yeah certainly he's probably the most underrated surfer on tour. and now he is uh obviously in the top five and he's also requalified or yeah he's, he's requalified and also qualified for this year so he will be on the back half of the tour he's obviously going to be fighting not for a spot on 2023 but for a spot in the top five to compete at lower trestles along with bear mamiya who has also requalified so or qualified for the first time in his career? So congrats to both of those people. Uh, Moana still needs some more points if she wants to do it, at least based on last year's sort of qualification cut line. Um, I'm guessing she'll get a wild card into Portugal. It is uh, Super Tubas is called the Portuguese Pipeline, so it'd be kind of rude for the WSL not to give her the chance out there. Um, but yeah, wild cards coming in strong. It's pretty cool that you, as a surfer. Um, particularly someone like Kaio, I'm sure he wants to be winning world titles, but the reality of the situation is he's usually in that sort of top 15 mark. He has a great two events. He can now go back to his sponsors and say, hey, I'm on tour for the next 18 months, more or, more or less, you know? Like, I'm not, not... I'm coming into December knowing I'm sweet and, and, and much more beyond that. So, you know, good on guys like Baron and Kaio, they're, you know... They're the boss at the table now. They've got the yeah. Upper hand. For now, we'll see how long it lasts. I do think that you know we're not going to see Italo down there for very long, especially coming into Portugal. You'd have to think John is pretty ripe to make a move up. So I think the cream will always rise. But I fucking love the way this year has started. If Caio Belli was in the yellow jersey going into Portugal, I would just have the biggest smile on my face. That would be the craziest poetic justice you've ever seen in your entire life <laughs> awesome well um yeah like you said we've got portugal in a couple weeks but uh until then this has been the stab cusp over and out thanks guys and thanks for listening uh we'll see you next week